Revelation, woo, chapter 2, verse 1. So, as I mentioned last week, the things which you have seen, Jesus tells John in chapter 1, write down the things which you have seen, and he did. He had that incredible, awesome vision of the glorified Christ with eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished brass, and hair, flowing hair like white wool. My kind of guy. Can't wait to see him. And then in chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are the current condition of the seven churches in Asia Minor. But we'll learn that there are layered levels of meaning within these seven churches. And then finally, beginning in chapter 4, the things which shall be, the things which are to come, that's where he spends the bulk of the vision, chapters 4 through 22. On the last days, the end times, where we are right now. So the seven churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3 were actual, literal churches of John's day, but they also represent types and conditions of churches in all generations. We'll see that as we go through. Now, Ephesus, the first one that we encounter here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Ephesus represents the early church, what we call the apostolic church. In other words, the first century church, the church that existed when the apostles were still alive, ending with John the last one to die at the end of the first century. Ephesus, the early church, the apostolic church, the very foundation of the New Testament church. And of course, there were many more churches than just the seven, but these seven represent the complete picture because seven is the number of completion. So these seven represent the complete picture of the church of God, both good and bad. The things which are is the church age, 30 A.D. until now. And so the first church John writes to is Ephesus. Now under Caesar Augustus, Ephesus became the capital of the Roman province which was called Asia. Now we know it as Turkey. It was a seaport in what is today the western portion of Turkey. It was the residence of the apostle John before and after his exile in Patmos. And it was famous for the temple of Diana or Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high, with great folding doors and 127 marble pillars, some of them covered with gold. Paul had visited Ephesus about 40 years earlier, around A.D. 53, about 43 years before this letter in Revelation was sent to them. Paul had worked there. Remember, Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than any other place that he went. He was there for three years, and he wrote an epistle to the Ephesian church later on. The city of Ephesus was so thoroughly stirred by Paul's message, Acts 19, 11 through 41, that the, remember the silversmiths there, they, they made all these idols and made lots of money off of it. The silversmiths created a riot because their business of making shrines of Artemis, these little miniature shrines, was threatened because people were turning away from idol worship and turning to Christ because of the ministry of Paul. Now at the time Paul was there, Ephesus was probably the fourth largest city in the world with a population estimated at 250,000. Paul ordained Timothy as an overseer there, but uh, we believe that was a temporary position. And toward the end of his life, John, the Apostle John, the writer of this book of Revelation, made Ephesus the home base for his ministry, and he died there and was buried there. So let's read the first four verses. 
Beginning in verse 1, Revelation 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. All good stuff, yes? Nevertheless, uh-oh, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let's pray. Fathers, we begin to look at this church of Ephesus. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds, give us a, a depth of understanding and insight into what the message is for Ephesus, because we know we can apply it to our own lives and our own church as well. So we ask you to just to bless this time of study as we begin chapter 2 of Revelation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the Greek word angelos, los angelos, the angels, that name doesn't fit too well anymore, does it? Angelos, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. I mentioned in one of the previous studies, chapter 1, the word's primary use in the Bible is in reference to heavenly angels, God's messengers. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us here they are his messengers. But as some commentators have pointed out, the angel of the church of Ephesus could also be referring to the pastor of the church. Either way, Jesus is sending a message through John to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These things says he who holds the seven stars. And I think we covered this previously. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the one who holds the churches in his right hand and walks among them. It is Jesus' presence in the church, folks, that makes it alive, active, and vital. Would you agree to that? And Jesus' presence in the church... Check this out. It's not guaranteed or automatic. The Bible says we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door was Jesus knocking on in Revelation 3.20? The door of the church. What's he doing on the outside? Trying to get in. I want him right here in the middle of this church, don't you? But that means we have to walk in obedience. We have to confess our sins, to be repentant, to walk in the Spirit. These things says he who holds the seven stars, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus walks among us as we gather together in his name. That's why it's so important for us to gather. We don't gather to have a meeting about him, but to meet with him, which we're doing here today. He's here with us. He promised Whenever two or more are gathered together in his name, he would be there in the midst of them. He's here today. And you say, well, yeah, he's, he's always here. He's always, he lives in us. But there's a special dynamic about the body of Christ gathered together. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. Really, that's kind of mean-spirited, isn't it? I mean, 
After all, Nancy Pelosi told us the MS-13 gang members were created in God's image. President Trump, that mean, horrible president, called them animals. But Nancy corrected things and let us know, no, these are wonderful, precious human beings created in God's image. So there must be a, there must be a uh, mistranslation here. You cannot bear those who are evil. That's not nice. I guess we're going to have to change the Bible. What do you think? Maybe we need to change ourselves, change our society. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. If you have any Nancy Pelosi fans out there, I apologize. I call her Pansy Nolosi. We definitely don't want to see that. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Now that's mean and nasty to call them liars. Maybe their truth is different than your truth. See how the world thinks? We don't want to think like that, folks. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the mind of Christ. I know your works. I know. Gnosko. What makes God God, and Jesus is God, by the way. He is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He's not limited by space or time. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There is no limit to his power. And he's omniscient, which means he knows all. He knows everything. And so he says, I know. Among the many things he knows, he knows the deeds, the works of the Ephesian church. Your works, your deeds, your labor, your hard work, and your patience or perseverance. Now, others may not always be aware of what we're doing. And sometimes people get a little bent out of shape or tweaked because they don't feel like they're getting their proper recognition. The important thing is God knows what we're up to, whether good or bad. Others may not be aware of what we're doing, but He is, and He's the one that matters most. Would you agree? And yet I would propose to you that many people are more focused on what others think about them than about what God thinks. Unfortunately, that's going to affect your actions and your attitude we should be God-centered, not man-centered. And you know what? God promises us if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all these things will be added to us. The most important thing is to please God. And if others are unpleased, that's their problem. Not that we deliberately go out of our way to offend people, but if in the very act of pleasing God, others are offended, then they have to deal with that. That's their problem. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, so they both count, words matter, deeds matter, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so I suspect we don't all follow this as well as we should, but the fact of the matter is, if we would start every action by saying, can I do this in Jesus' name? Ouch. I don't know about you. I'm immediately convicted. What do you think? Can I tell this guy off in Jesus' name? <laughs> Who's standing too close to me in the line at Smith's? Hey, buddy. You're not social distancing. <laughs> in Jesus' name. 
Get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> Can I do this in Jesus' name? Boy, would that make a difference, wouldn't it? We might have a better witness and a better testimony. What do you think? Can I do this in Jesus' name? Can I keep the change when they gave me too much in Jesus' name? You see how that works? Colossians 3.23, down a few verses. Whatever you do, do it heartily with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men. Again, maybe you look at your boss, your teacher, whoever it might be that's in authority over you at that point, and you say, well, that person doesn't deserve my best effort. It's going to slough it off. But we're supposed to do whatever we do as to the Lord. You're doing it for Jesus. Ladies, when your husband's a jerk, no comments. You say, well, this biblical submission stuff is for the birds. This guy doesn't deserve my submission. Well, guess what? You're supposed to be doing it for Jesus. Men. <laughs> when your wife isn't the epitome of the loving, sweet, humble, helpmeet, you're supposed to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're supposed to treat her the way Jesus would treat her. See? Whatever we do, we're to do it as unto the Lord. And even when we aren't in that frame of mind, the Lord is still watching, isn't he? I know your works, deeds, your labor, your hard work, your patience, your perseverance. The word works here is literally acts. The Greek erga, ergonomics. Acts, our acts. I know your acts. An act, a deed, a thing done. The idea of working is emphasized in opposition to that which is less than work. I know you're working hard, Ephesians. You're laboring, you're toiling, the Greek kopon, to toil. It means intense labor united with trouble and toil. And again, this is primarily spiritual that Jesus is referring to. Your, your works for the kingdom of God, your labor, your toil. Your patience or your perseverance. Hupomone, you probably heard that Greek word for patience. Literally means under remaining. Remaining under stress. Steadfastness, constancy, endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Hupomone, I know your works, your deeds, your labor, your toil, your patience, your perseverance, your hupomone. I mean, this is a great commendation Jesus is giving to this church in Ephesus. And then he says, you cannot bear those who are evil. Or the NIV, it says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Notice before Jesus rebukes them, and that's coming soon, he commends them for the good things 
By the way, this is the heart of God. Some people think that God is just a big meanie looking for any and every opportunity to squash you like a bug. It's just the opposite. God would much rather commend you than condemn you. He proved it when he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. In the book of James, it says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, judgment will come for those who refuse his offer of forgiveness by grace through faith, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. That's what God wants for every human being. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But notice, in order to not perish, you have to come to repentance. That doesn't mean you're going to ever achieve perfection in this life. There's only very few of us that can ever do that. No, I'm just... That was totally ridiculous. I'm being facetious. None of us can ever achieve perfection in this life. That's why we need God's grace and His mercy. His grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We get what we don't deserve. Mercy, we don't get what we do deserve. You've heard me say this many times. Don't ever go before God like some hoity-toity faith person and demand that God give you what you deserve. Unless you want to look like a burnt matchstick. Because <laughs> that's what we deserve. It's not about what we deserve. It's about who He is in His great love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. But He says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. Now again, as I kind of alluded to a few moments ago, to the world's way of thinking, intolerance is evil and wicked in and of itself. From the worldly perspective, for God to say, you cannot bear those who are evil, that sounds contradictory because to the world's perspective, intolerance is evil. But God says it's a good thing when we are intolerant of those who are evil. Now, at the same time, Jesus said, love your enemies. It's like heaping hot coals of fire on their heads. Only God can change a heart. But we are not to be tolerant of evil actions. That's why it's important to speak out against abortion and other things that are horrific and horrendous to God. That doesn't mean we can't love someone who's had an abortion. doesn't mean we can't love someone who works in an abortion clinic. But we must not be tolerant of the evil practice. So from God's perspective, to not tolerate wickedness is a good thing. It's a godly thing. Fleshly compassion, human compassion, would say, well, like Nancy Pelosi there, these MS-13 gang members who hack people up with machetes and rape young girls and cut off people's heads, oh my goodness, they're created in God's image. That is not God's image. And we cannot tolerate that. But that's what's happened in our society. And like I told you, that's what's led to where we are now. In the midst of this pandemic, they've been releasing all kinds of violent criminals across our country. But I'm not nervous. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they're arresting people for not wearing masks. They're arresting pastors for holding church services. But they're releasing violent criminals from prison. Oh, because they might get COVID-19. That's the twisted mentality of a godless society. Do you see? You see? 
Now, there is a kind of tolerance that is good. God says it's a good thing that we are to be tolerant of each other's imperfections. Colossians 3.13. Same chapter, same book. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So we're not to be tolerant of wickedness, but knowing that we are all imperfect creatures. Peter says, Above all, love one another fervently, for love covers over the multitude of sins. Every day we sin, not because we want to as believers. We don't want to. Our goal is to not do it, but sometimes we do. We might say something that's offensive, not even meaning to. James says we all stumble in many ways. And so we are to be tolerant towards one another as believers, not to be easily or quickly offended. Love covers over the multitude of sins. We're to be intolerant towards evil, but tolerant towards our own, each other's imperfections. We are not to tolerate wickedness. This would make us no different than the world, would it? And sadly, that's what many parts of the church have become. There's no difference. Gay marriage with a public uh, justice of the peace. Gay marriage in a liberal church. Abortion for a non-believer. Abortion for a liberal believer. No difference. 1 Corinthians 5.13 Those who are outside, God judges. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they should not associate with people who identify as believers but continue to practice a sinful lifestyle. Paul says you're to expel them from the church so that they might be brought to repentance. But those who are outside, God judges. We tend to get it backwards as Christians. Again, sometimes we tolerate things we shouldn't tolerate. We give each other a pass because we're believers, but then we're quick to judge those out in the world who honestly don't even know any better. How fair is that? We judge some non-believer for their sinful activities when they don't know any better. But then we say, oh, well, this is a brother or sister in the Lord. We need to be tolerant. We need to be understanding. What did they do in the church in Corinth? This guy was living with his stepmother in an incestuous relationship, and they were told not to come back to the church until they repented. We've got it all backwards. People are afraid they're going to be viewed as unloving if they hold people accountable for their sinful actions. 1 Corinthians 5.13, those who are outside the church, God judges. He'll take care of the non-believer. Our place is to show them the love of Christ. It's God's place to judge them and deal with them. But then Paul tells us, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Those in the church are held to a higher standard or should be. Again, there's always opportunity for repentance. You confront the person. If they repent, hey, you've won them back over to the Lord. But if they don't repent, then they're to be removed so that they can be brought to a place of repentance. Very few, if any, churches practice this today. And again, that's why the church has become so lukewarm, watered down. Church of Laodicea, the final church, Revelation chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This is not a verse that goes over well with certain groups. Do you not know that, Paul writing again, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now we know that the righteousness is not from us, it's from him. We are clothed 
and the righteousness of Christ. But, here's how Paul defines unrighteousness. Neither fornicators, those who sleep around. If you call yourself a Christian, you should not be sleeping around. Is, do we have to tell you that? Really? Do we have to? T- it should be obvious. No fornicators. Such were some of you, he says later in this passage. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. And we, this is a, a touchy one, folks. We live in a society that's steeped in idolatry. We may not have these little idols. Some people do. But idolatry takes on many different forms. The number one God in this nation is money. Again, as I was talking earlier about what has brought us to this place today in our nation, we've exchanged Sunday worship of God, of Jesus, for worshiping the mountains, the streams, the valleys, taking your ATV out, you know, your RV, and on and on it goes. There's nothing wrong with having those things. But I remember when I moved to California to live with my aunt and uncle after my mother died, my cousin and I started getting into dirt bikes. And we worked for this guy there in El Segundo, California, by the airport, who made, fabricated these vinyl uh, strips that go around the airplane windows to seal the windows. And it was a pretty flaky joint. We, we operated these high-powered vacuum knife cutter things that would cut the plastic and then you would melt it and weld it together. And uh, the machine I was using didn't have a guard. My finger slipped down and I whacked it and almost cut off not much of my finger on my right hand. But that's another story. Well, you just heard part of it. But this guy was really into dirt bikes too, you know, and he would, the trailers and everything. He would take us out to the desert and take us riding. But my uncle made it very clear you will not go riding on Sunday. That's church day. And we had to adhere to that. So there's nothing wrong with recreation. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment and fun. But if we don't have a committed, dedicated, disciplined worship of God in our lives, then we can become subject to idolatry. It can be motorcycles. It can be cars. It can be you name it. Money itself. Money itself. And all this idolatry is one of the main reasons we're where we're at today in our nation. The fornicators will not inherit the kingdom. The idolaters nor adulterers. And today that's a very popular thing. Many people promote adultery as something very desirable. It's a lot more fun to hook up with somebody who's married than somebody who's single. That's no challenge to hook up with a single person. Ah, but a married person. Now there's a challenge for you. And yet... I hate to tell this to all the adulterers. God says, you're not going to inherit his kingdom. Oh boy, now it gets really hot and heavy. Nor homosexuals. Well, they're born that way. You know what, folks? We're all born sinners. I mean, the adulterer could say, well, I can't help it. I was born that way. Like Lady Gaga. I was born this way. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know? Great voice, incredible musician, very confused person. You could use, the murderer could say, I can't help it. I was born this way. It's genetic. You can't punish me for murdering. I I can't help it. Right? It's no different. Yeah, you were born a sinner. Guess what? God can change your heart. 
God can change your life. God can save you. God can set you free. But first, you've got, you know what confession means? It means to agree with God, to come into agreement with God. You've got to agree with God. Yes, God, you're right. I'm wrong. Yes, I was born in sin, but I don't have to stay this way. I know that you can change me. And God has the last word, does he not? The first and the last. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And you see, folks, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. You see, folks, when God tells you, if you behave this way, you can't be a part of my kingdom, that should cause you to want to say, okay, God, I'm done with it. I want you more than anything else. Shouldn't it be that way? Why should I want to satisfy my flesh temporarily rather than spend eternity with the creator of all things? That is foolish. Nothing is worth trading your salvation. Thank you very much, Monty Hall. You remember that one? Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. The devil wants to make a deal with you. Trade your soul for what's behind door number three. Is it a luscious lady? Is it a macho man? Is it a big pile of cash? Come on, come on down and trade your soul for what's behind door number one, two, or three. You don't want to do that. Today, even many who call themselves Christians are offended by the idea of intolerance. But our greatest concern, as I've already mentioned, should be to not offend God. Would you agree? Okay, now he also commends them. You have tested or judged those who say they are apostles and are not. There's still people running around today claiming to be apostles. Did you know there were only 12 apostles? Now there might be somebody who operate in what you might call an apostolic ministry. Pastor Chuck Smith, who never ever once referred to himself as an apostle, by the way, but he became the father of thousands of churches. That's kind of apostolic. But Pastor Chuck never claimed to be an apostle. But even in the first century, there were people running around claiming to be apostles who were not because in so doing, they could bring people under their sway, under their authority. They could manipulate in the name of being an apostle. And there are still people doing stuff like that today. You have tested or judged those who say they are apostles and are not. The greater part of the church today, I would say, is unwilling to do this. Now, when somebody like a Rick Warren or a Joel Osteen, somebody like that, which I believe these men are very bad for the church, and yet they're lifted up as, oh, America's pastor, they need to have like a, a playoff or something. Osteen versus Warren. Who's got, you know, there's got, they can't both be America's pastor. America's pastor playoff. That, ABC, Friday night. 7 p.m. The masked pastor. 1 John 2, 20-21, John tells us as believers, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. In other words, you all, one translation says, all of you know the truth. How do we know the truth? Because it's been revealed to us in the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit quickens the understanding to our hearts and our minds. 
I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. When you don't know the truth, you won't listen. I've written to you because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. So the anointing, you know, we were joking about this before church with Renee. Oh, James said, he, you know, he, I said, should we, you know, check people's temperature? Should we get one of those scanner type thermometers and check? Because uh, Tim Miller thought he might have a little bit of a temperature. And I told James, James, would you put your hand on Tim's forehead and see if he feels hot? <laughs> you see how that works, right? <laughs> and then James said, I could just lay hands on people as they come in. I said, but what if they fall over? Then you'll know you have the anointing. That's not even the anointing. This is the anointing. You know what the anointing is? The Spirit of God living in you that helps you to discern truth from lie. That's the anointing. And we desperately need it because we are coming into the last days of the great deception. You see? What is going to prevent you from being deceived? The anointing. Walking in the Spirit, staying in the Word, staying in prayer, staying in fellowship, so that you are not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And they're always coming down the pike, folks. There's always something new under the sun when it comes to false doctrine. Actually not, it's just recycled over and over again. Same source, doctrines of demons. You have tested or judged those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. The anointing, because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Here's just a logical thing that we should all know and understand. Anyone promoting a lie as the truth cannot possibly be rooted in the truth. Does that make sense? Anyone promoting a lie as the truth, this is the gospel truth. They can't be rooted in the truth if they're promoting a lie as the truth. So therefore, we have to reject them, their ministry, and their message, period. Well, that's not nice. They're just doing their best. They're trying. They think what they're doing is right. Well, the devil thinks that too. He thinks he's right and God's wrong. Did you know that? It started in the Garden of Eden when he twisted the words of God to Eve. I've told you this before. Part of the Masonic teaching when you get down deep into it is that Lucifer is really the enlightened one and God is trying to rip you off. And if you really want to be enlightened, you need to embrace Lucifer because after all, he was the morning star, right? He masquerades himself as an angel of light. Verse 3. Here's another commendation. You have persevered and have patience. You have persevered. Greek, epistasis. You bear. It means you bear. You, you bear up under the trials, the tribulations. The Ephesians had faced persecution for their faith and had not given up. That's the real test. Folks, as much as I don't like saying this and I have not looked forward to it, the real test has just begun. You know that? We've had it too easy for too long. I hope you're ready for the test. You know what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You don't have to fear. In that moment, God will give you every ounce of strength that you need. If you don't faint, if you don't fall away. 
If you don't cave in and give in, God will give you the strength to endure anything that may come upon us. James 1, 2, my brethren, count it all joy. Don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. It's what you tell your friend when they're going through a trial. Come on now, man. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Don't quote anymore. I'm going to lay hands on you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. In physical world, if you want to build up endurance, you have to do what? You have to exercise. You have to push yourself, right? How do these guys get these huge biceps and six-packs? and Right? They push themselves to the point of pain. Correct? No pain, no gain. We all know that one, right? How do we get strong spiritually? How do we build up endurance, patience? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Oh, nobody's ever been through what I've been through. This is horrible. Okay, go ahead and have your pity party. It's not true. Somewhere someone has gone through something much worse than what you're going through. It's common to man, these temptations that we face, these trials. But God is faithful. Do you believe that? He is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But I can't take it. I can't bear it anymore. And yet he will sustain you. He will carry you through. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Or one translation says bear up under it. In other words, God is not promising to remove that burden, at least not you know, right at the very moment that you want him to, but he is promising to give you the strength to bear up under it. I once used the analogy for this verse of weightlifting. When you do free weights and you have a spotter, you know what I'm talking about? There's a person standing there so that if you start to lose it, they grab it so you don't crush your chest or break your neck. Jesus is our spotter. He's right there. He's waiting. How much can you lift? How much can you bear? Come on, you can do it. But you know what? If we begin to falter, he's right there to grab it. He will not let you fall. You've persevered. You've not become weary. These are tremendous accolades and commendations Jesus is lavishing on the Ephesians. You've not faltered. You've remained you have not lost strength or momentum. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. Man, nobody cares. It doesn't seem to make a difference. Why bother? No, don't grow weary. For in due season, there are seasons, aren't there? In the agricultural community, there's a planting season. There's a watering and nurturing season. There's a harvest. There's a dormant season. And there is a season for reaping the rewards and the benefits of our efforts here on earth and in the afterlife. Due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If the farmer loses heart, he plants the crop, he waters, he feeds, nothing's coming up. Oh, forget it. What's going to happen? No crop. 
Due season. You've got to keep persevering. You've got to keep doing the right things for the right reasons. You've got to keep following God, serving God. And in due season, you will reap if you faint not, if you don't give up. Sadly, I don't care what arena of life we're talking about, but there are always people that do just that. They grow weary. They give up. And then the ones who persevere... The ones who try over and over again to start a business, to create something, and they fail. Abraham Lincoln was defeated six times before he became president. How many people would have persevered like that? But he became one of our greatest presidents. What if he gave up after the second, third, fourth election, fifth election? Those who persevere are rewarded in God's timing. In God's timing. Oftentimes, God's timing and our timing don't coincide, do they? Because if he gives it to us too easy, we don't appreciate it. We don't learn anything from it. We don't grow from it. So I would propose to you that God oftentimes is determined that we fail multiple times before we succeed. So that when we do, we know how we got there. He did it. Not me. He. Right? Well, I think... I was going to go through verse 4, but I believe it's, we'll have to stop for today. So I'll just close with this. This was a good church, the Ephesian church, a great bunch of believers, but, and I'll leave you with this as we go for next time, Revelation 2.4, nevertheless, oh man, it was going so well. They were feeling so good. Yeah, man, we bad. Ephesus, come on. Nevertheless, here we go. I have this against you. You've lost your first love. That's going to be a powerful message. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, again, we're so thankful, so grateful to be able to gather here together today, Lord. We are not trying to be foolish or rebellious or anything else, but we do believe with all of our hearts it's your will that we would gather together to worship you, to praise you, to study your word. And even to fellowship, Lord, you told us not to forsake the gathering together of the saints, and so here we are. We do ask for your hand of protection, Lord, upon each one of us for health and strength, and Lord, that you would help us to do our best to abide by the guidelines to the extent that they are reasonable, and Lord, we know that we are ultimately obligated to obey you rather than men, but Lord, we do want to be a witness and a testimony for you. We pray during this time of tremendous turmoil in our nation, that you'd pour out your spirit upon America. Calm down the vicious, the violent, the destructive, the murderous. Lord, that you would show people that there are other ways to achieve their goals, which would be equality, justice, liberty and justice for all. That's our motto. And Lord, we know that many in this nation are committed to that, not all. I pray that you would deal with those that are exploiting this situation and using it as an excuse to just wreak havoc in the cities of our, of our nation. Lord, I pray that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit and calm things down, bring peace again to our nation. And Lord, draw many people to yourself, Father. We pray that this could be a, a time of great spiritual renewal and awakening, that many people would come to Christ because we know that Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. 
thank you for this time of study in your word. It is precious. We love your word. Lord, your word is dynamic. It's powerful. It's life-changing. We thank you for it. And before we close, I just want to ask anyone who might have a prayer need today, if you'd raise your hand, we'll just pray for you. We can't have you come up front today, but I have one there. Anybody else that has a prayer request? Okay. Just raise your hand. Okay. Praise God. I see you guys. Father, you see each one of these folks. You see their hands. You know what's going on. Whether it's a health issue, a relationship issue, a financial issue, whatever it might be, Father. We know that you hear our prayers. You answer our prayers. You told us to ask, to seek, to knock, and it would be given unto us. So we pray for health, for healing, for those who need it. We pray for financial provision for those who need it. We pray for repair of broken relationships. We pray for strength to stand up under the strain and the stress of this pandemic. And now the rioting, the looting, the protesting. Lord, calm our hearts. Give us peace. And Lord, I pray for each one of these that raised their hand today, that you would bless them, pour out your spirit upon them, give them hope, give them strength, give them faith. And we pray that those prayers would be answered in the mighty name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.